0: This is Aaron Hesse, and we are going to be listening to a podcast that we, re- we recorded after the sermon, The Disciplined Application of Wise Faith, and that was from August 7th. So we'll listen to a clip from that sermon, which will give some context, and then we'll dive right into the podcast.
1: It has been the point of Christ since the beginning to create a group of creatures that were capable of living with the kind of freedom that any creature that bears the image of God should live with. And to produce in the organization of those creatures a just peace. Galatians 5 13, 4 says, My brothers, you were called to be free. Meaning, when you were called to believe in Jesus and become Christians, you were called to be free. That is, the end of what the gospel is meant to produce in human beings is freedom. But then he says this But do not use your freedom to indulge the sinful nature. That is, in your freedom from tyrannical, absurd, corruptive, rule mongering legalism, do not leave that to slip into libertinism. Right? But rather, do not indulge in simple nature, but rather serve one another in love. The entire law is summed up in a single command love your neighbor as yourself. The New Testament calls this life in the spirit that life in the Spirit recognizes what indulging the sinful nature is and rejects it, and life in the Spirit recognizes what loving our neighbor and loving God is, and accepts it, and embraces it, and then applies it. And any creature who understands what sinful indulgence is, and understands what loving our neighbor and our God is, and simply applies those things with consistency and discipline, needs no external governance. External governance is only necessary in the absence of consistent self-governance. And to that extent, the more any people or person fails to govern themselves, the more they need external governments. That's why there's prisons, which is extreme self-governance for those with an extreme inability to govern themselves, and governments at varying levels of overgovernance for varying levels of failures of self-governance and also because of people not governing themselves who are in power. There's lots of reasons, right? Now, a, a Christian author, asking us who is, who is, um who lives in Washington, um, and it started something called the Trinity Forum, wrote a book some time ago called A Free People's Suicide, and he said that if, if most of us came out of high school and we were asked— In what way did the Founding Fathers of America try to create a perpetual society? They had just one liberty, and they wanted a good and just society, and so they asked the question, how does the people live in both justice and— but mainly sustain their liberty? He said most people who've been through high school would answer, separation of powers, affirmation of rights, right? You separate powers in the government between states, and you get a separation of powers, so it's hard to accumulate tyrannical authority. And secondly, you affirm a set of rights that any authority can never contradict, so that rights are affirmed and tyranny is hard to create, and so therefore you have the perpetuation of liberty. But Guinness, he said, that's actually not the first layer of that. That before is a much more basic understanding of human society and human nature and the very nature of freedom itself. And he said, you can, read, you can read all the Founding Fathers, religious and irreligious, and they all affirmed a basic interconnected triangle, what Guinness calls the golden triangle, that produces real freedom among human beings. And he said, it, it requires these three things. It requires faith of some kind, which in the Founding Fathers meant different denominations of Christianity mainly, is what that meant to them. So Baptists and Episcopalians, it's fine to let them be Baptists and Episcopalians— So long as they believed in something that affirmed the dictates of virtue in a way beyond self-reference. In fact, John Adams said one time, I think he was writing in Jefferson, but I can't remember right now. He said, I know that there are many men in our experience that have said in their irreligiosity that they need no religion to be good. He said, I have found in my intercourse with them for them all to be plainly scoundrels. Philosophically, I mean, we could sit around and have coffee about whether or not atheists can be good. From a Christian's perspective, the answer is no, because all human beings must rightly give praise that is deserved to the God who is there. And by definition, an atheist can't do that. And so in the holistic sense, that's not true. Can Bill be as good as Sam in the general sense of how people treat each other? With civility, the answer could be yes— but the, the issue is, is that that's kind of immaterial. What the Founding Fathers recognized was there has never been any society ever that among the mass of people, that a whole society of people were drawn to virtue, all individually and together, in a, in a fabric of society without a larger authority that stated what was good, made it obligatory on people, and threatened its disobedience and prayed its adherence. All of them, to a man, believed that faith in something was necessary because it upheld virtue. And virtue was the only thing that could uphold liberty. That's the connection that's so important to make today, because this is what the Bible has taught for millennia, that there's actually no political ideology that can make for liberty, nor for justice, nor for peace. Only virtue. Duly shared ever revived, always fought for, ever needful, its purveyors and lovers ever watchful. Human virtue, self-governance, is the only thing that has ever provided the opportunity for self-governance, for liberty. And yet, as virtue is necessary for liberty, so liberty must exist for there to be faith, because faith has to be free. It cannot be coerced, and whenever you coerce faith, you tend to destroy it and its institutions. A lot of people believe that the reason why almost no one goes to church in Europe is because Europe is more secular than America. That's not really true.
0: Welcome to the Engage and Equip podcast. I'm Aaron Hesse, one of the staff here at High Point Church, and I'm here with Nick Gibson, the senior pastor, and um, over the past few weeks, we've been going through the Book of Proverbs, talking about the way of wisdom, um, because we, you know, it's pretty familiar within the church that the Book of Proverbs is about, um, it, what's well, known as the Book of Wisdom. Yes, then that's what it's named. Or it's a wisdom book,
1: and it tends yeah. to be the preeminent wisdom book, because it's yes. full of Proverbs.
0: So so we know that, and yet mm. oftentimes, like these days, we, we hear ancient words of wisdom, and we think, that would be great. Like, I don't know fortune cookie or in a hallmark card but it's really hard to sometimes make the application for our personal lives like become a reality mm-hmm. and so um this past sunday we talked about how in the society that we live in in um in the different organizations that we're involved in in, in work in just socially how how we're supposed to um take from proverbs wisdom and mm-hmm. Im- put them into those different parts of our lives. Mm-hmm. So, Nick, how do you see like what we were talking about specifically from Proverbs 3, relating, our, um, relating those Christian concepts, the, the Proverbs from the Bible, to the society that we live in and, mm-hmm. and how we're supposed to live those out?
1: Yeah, so one of the things a lot of people don't realize about the book of Proverbs is as you read through it, it actually makes quite a lot of statements that are essentially political statements about human societies and what kings should be like and how decisions should be made and who should rule and those kinds of things. Because those are within the purview of our spiritual understanding of human nature and society. So the Bible does make statements that are political. It is in that sense a political book as well as many other things. Mm -hmm. And so when Christians and pastors and churches don't talk about public life, how societies are formed, what that means and how that matters, they really aren't listening to what Paul called in Acts 20, the whole counsel of God. Mm. They are artificially narrowing it. And so one of the things I've been looking at as we've come to the book of Proverbs and looked at some of these statements is Proverbs has a lot to say about how human societies function towards human flourishing. And in the context of that, I actually came across a lot of writings of the founding fathers of the United States, and actually, they knew this stuff and believed it very deeply. Mm-hmm. And so, there's a lot of close relationship between how the country we live in was founded, what they believed about how um, wisdom and virtue led to human flourishing and liberty, mm-hmm. that no American, hardly any American, knows anything about, and very few Christians see how these things are related to each other.
0: Yeah, you mentioned something about a golden triangle and and yeah can you explain that a little bit yeah so
1: Oz guinness who is um a a christian like apologist but he he deals with public a lot of public life issues um he's a a british scholar uh part of the trinity forum he wrote a book called free People's suicide and in it he talks about what he called america's golden triangle that basically unanimously among the founding fathers um the, the question was how do you sustain liberty right they just fought this big war against britain in order to maintain their liberty they didn't see it as a revolution Mm -hmm. they saw they didn't see it as because revolution is to bring about a new order that's not how they saw it they saw it as a war of independence Mm -hmm. which was in order to keep their lives right to be free but when they got that freedom they said okay wait a second so how do you keep freedom how does any human society keep freedom and if you went to like an american high school and you went to government class you'd be like oh i know it's Right, it's um, statement of rights, um, separation of powers, right? Which is true. That's how the Constitution is written and set up with the Bill mm-hmm. of Rights. But deeper than that is what Osgood has called the Golden Triangle, which is a fundamental belief about human nature and society that all the founders shared. Which is basically this: that faith, virtue, and liberty support each other to sustain liberty mm-hmm. in a society that will produce justice and peace. Mm-hmm. That is, faith in something, or faith of some kind is the way Guinness states it, which to the Founding Fathers, for the most part, meant some denomination of Christianity. Mm -hmm. If you press them on it, they would say certain forms of Islam, though John Adams went both ways on that, because when he actually tried to negotiate treaties with the Muslim empires of Northern Africa, um, he's like, so we we should treat each other as friends. And they were like, no, our book says that we can conquer you if you don't believe what we believe. And he's like, oh. That's not really the same premise I'm coming to this negotiation <laughs> with, and so there are certain he recognized there were at least forms of Islam or is- Islam as it was in the 1700s, at least broadly, mm-hmm. and in some parts of Islam today, sure. that, some organized religion. Right. Like,
0: either way, yeah. So whether it was Christianity, right. Islam. Yeah. So and
1: they didn't really act much interact much with Hinduism and Buddhism, mm-hmm. and so for them, religion was that there were all these Christian denominations, and for them that was chaotic enough, mm-hmm. and they all remember the European history of the wars of religion, which were all Christian wars right, between Protestants and Catholics and between different different kingdoms in Europe. And so for them, toleration of religion was a very hard-won um, insight. So for Europeans in the 1700s who had gone through, like, the Hundred Years' War kind of stuff, and, I mean, it a very long period of inter-religious warring. Mm-hmm. By the time you got to 17, whatever, 1750s and onward, there was this very strong sense that we have to have toleration of religion, right? Mm-hmm. And so they believed in toleration between religions, but they also believed in the importance of religion. That is, a belief in God who reveals moral truths that we can agree on, Mm -hmm. who teaches us what's right in accord with reasons and conscience, and who also stands ready to enforce those things so that we have proper honor and fear towards what is right and good. Mm -hmm. And they believed that was absolutely necessary to uphold virtue. Mm -hmm. And they believed that well-formed virtue was necessary for people to live free Mm -hmm. because in order to not have an oppressive government, you had to have people who could engage in self-government, which is what virtue is, that I can govern myself in a way that is good for you and for me. And if you and I can engage in self-government, then we don't need somebody else coming in here and governing us, right? Which is kind of the idea of kids grow up and they don't need parents anymore. The whole point Mm -hmm. of being a parent is to teach, be a governor over your kids until they can self govern Mm -hmm. And then they discipline themselves and you no longer have to do it. That's what every parent is waiting for. <laughs> and similarly, among all peoples, people who govern themselves don't have to be tyrannically governed by someone else. Mm-hmm. And so the Founding Fathers believed that faith would support that virtue that was self-governing. And then people could bear the responsibilities of freedom. They could govern themselves without having to be tyrannically governed. Right. But then that freedom was then pushed forward to faith because faith can only be vital and self-reforming if it's free. They realized that the state churches were, were chaotic and disastrous and unhelpful, and they actually tended to support tyranny. Mm-hmm. But the free churches of America didn't. They tended to be self-reviving, and revivals would flow through. Whitfield would come and preach, and, and revival would spread everywhere, and the churches would reject. Some would reject, it, some would accept it. And people made choices about where to go to church, and they saw free religion as something that revived the virtue of the people, but only if it stayed free. Yeah. So they said, how do we make a government that is doesn't institute a religion so religion is free mm-hmm. but that supports religion so that religion would be present and always reforming itself right. as a free thing that religion would then support virtue so that we'd be a virtuous people and then as a virtuous people we could bear the responsibility and difficulties of being free mm-hmm. and have the discipline to govern ourselves mm-hmm. so that we don't need to be tyrannized and then that freedom can then produce the freedom of faith, and so on. Mm-hmm. So you have this golden triangle. And so then they said, that's the kind of society we have to have. Now how do we write a constitution that will allow that golden triangle to function?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And so that's one of the reasons why a lot of people are very confused now about like how to think politically or how to, what even political philosophy would possibly have, because all of that is entirely forgotten by both parties mm-hmm. and by virtually everyone in the American system. And Christians have no idea that essentially the philosophy of the Bible and Proverbs is the building block that creates the foundation that stands beneath that golden triangle. Mm. Now, I want to say very quickly and follow up to this before you ask your next next question, which is there are lots of ways in which the United States is not a Christian nation. Mm -hmm. So when people say the America is not a Christian nation, there's a lot of ways you could mean that statement, and it's true. But there are other ways you could mean that statement. That is, the fundamental understanding of human nature and human freedom in relationship to virtue and how that relates to God, which was the basis for the founding of America, which is actually utterly Christian in the deepest possible sense and is nothing else. Mm-hmm. And I think Christians sometimes forget that 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 foundational lo- logic at the very bottom of the first thinking of how our nation set itself up constitutionally and as free people, which is like just about literally one hundred percent Christian, and and much was actually taken from the Bible itself.
0: Mm-hmm. Hmm. So, what, I mean, I hear, you know, though, pe- people really truly believe, though, that the founding fathers really weren't Christian, that they were all atheists. That, I mean, mm-hmm. so where, yeah. I'm, I'm just curious, like, where right. does that view then come you from? You know, and- I've
1: believed that for years. Mm-hmm. Um, I was taught in school that George Washington was a deist and that Jefferson was like a closet atheist mm-hmm. and Benjamin Franklin had no religion whatsoever and that most of the other founding fathers we know nothing about. And so they were probably deists, too. And it's, that's entirely false. Actually, a, a near majority of the founding fathers were clergy, right? Mm-hmm. Or had studied at divinity schools because almost all of the great colleges at that time had been started as divinity schools, mm-hmm. right? Um, so, so so there's that. But in addition to that, none of those founding fathers are actually atheists. In fact, none of the founding fathers that, that we call founding fathers are, in fact, atheists. Um, Franklin said on a number of occasions that he believed in the public religion of America, which was basically there is a God that God is providential, that ger- God believes in morality and enforces that morality and ultimate judgment. And he said, that is the public rel- religion of America, and I ascribe to it. Mm-hmm. Now, in defense of people who think of Franklin as a deist, he basically slept with whoever he wanted and he so on. But he, he saw himself as a moral failure because he actually had a morality book where he would keep track of his own virtue and he had all the 13 virtues he had enumerated and he would mark in the book every week how well he did and he erased over it so many times because he failed every week that he eventually had there were holes in the paper and he threw it in, and he got tablets that were made out of like ivory or something i can't remember what so that he could write in all of his failures and it would never wear through but he believed in those virtues and he believed in an ultimately religious reason for those mm-hmm. the, the reason why the founding fathers are seen as deists is because they were fairly non-doctrinal a lot of them A lot of them would look at the creedal doctrinal statements of many of the specific denominations, and they did not ascribe to those. So Jefferson, I think, went to an Episcopalian church. But if you were to try to nail him down on like, do you think Jesus turned water into wine? He'd be like, no, right? Mm -hmm. But if you said, are you an atheist? Jefferson on a number of occasions said, no, I could never be an atheist. And the reason he gave for it was he believed that religious faith was integral to supporting virtue. And in order for that to be true, you can't be a deist. Because a deist, by definition, is someone who believes that God sort of started everything and takes no providential control or interest in it. Mm-hmm. And if you believe that God governs by his providence and judges on the basis of morality, which is not what Christians actually believe, only partially, right? But if you believe those two things, you are by definition not a deist. Mm-hmm. You believe If you believe in a providential God, you're not a deist by definition. But that doesn't make you a Christian. Right. But all of the founding fathers, including the more irreligious ones like Jefferson and Franklin, were far more religious than most people think. And they believed in the the statutes of the public religion of America. And they, the reason they said they did was because it upheld virtue, because they believed in the Golden Triangle. Um, Other founding fathers, like John Adams, Adams was almost an evangelical. Like what we would recognize as an evangelical. Mm-hmm. Believe in the authority of the Bible, believe that it believed in the deity of Christ and the salvation and death of Christ, believe in the gospel, all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. And Washington, though Washington had a few statements that make him sound a little bit deistic. Um, he absolutely he was he was very Christian, believed in personal salvation, believed in the death and resurrection of Jesus, that kind of stuff. But you know, it's always funny when people say that Washington was a deist because listen, if you ride in a battle and you get like five horses shut out from under you and you get to the end of the battle and there's holes in your jacket <laughs> where bullets went through and you are not hit. Mm-hmm. It's hard to experience that and not believe in the providence of God. Right. Right. Mm-hmm. And so it's, it's so Jeff, you could say that Washington believed in providence for the wrong reasons, sure. yeah. but he did in his writings are very full of his belief in God's providence. And he said it over and over again. Mm-hmm. Um, and so when you actually go through some of these quotes of those people, and then when you get to the founders of the Constitution, like James Madison and George Mason and these kinds of people, these are people of even sometimes more specific faith who believe even more specifically in God's providence. So.
0: So where, so, I mean, as you're talking about yeah, the, the, the Golden Triangle, and um, although it does cycle through, like where you, um, virtue does require faith, which Mm -hmm. requires freedom. I mean, it continues from there, but why is it that freedom, why is it freedom that we ultimately want? Like, why is, why is that the crux of, um, not, not the end, but that's really what we're aiming for so that it can continue with that cycle? Mm -hmm.
1: Yeah, because, um, I mean, Lewis said it's ultimately because God wanted free lovers, right? That God's, Interest is in people who do the right thing freely. Mm-hmm. And so without liberty, you can never have that, right? So under tyranny, people may act good, but this doesn't mean they are good. Mm-hmm. It's only free people who self govern themselves voluntarily that then create justice and peace that are actually good people. Mm-hmm. And so in that sense, um, and, and just because of divine revelation, I mean, the Bible says that God has always been working to create a free people. That was always his intention. In fact, if you look at um, his giving of the Torah, right, he he brings the Israelites together, and he gives them a very weak government, the weakest form of government ever created. He gives them a law that is that all of them are equal under. He gives them a charismatic prophet that will try to persuade them, but he can't force them to do anything. Right. And then he gives them a judicial, a tribal judicial system. Mm-hmm. So there's a system by which you can decide whether or not somebody broke the laws. But the people have to do the stoning Mm -hmm. the people themselves have to meet out the punishments and so it's entirely democratized on the basis of a law with no centralization of government yet with a prophetic voice to say this is right this is wrong a law that says this is right and this is wrong and a judicial system that says this is guilty this is innocent but no executive power if the people won't be free they won't be free Mm -hmm. and then as the story plays out moses dies and the people descend into anarchy. They do what's ever right in their own eyes, right? The book of Judges. Mm-hmm. And every time they fall into anarchy, they end up under tyranny, mm-hmm. right? Until they ask for their own tyrant in the book of Samuel. They right. say, we want a king. And God's like, listen, if I give you a king, here's what you're going to get. You're going to get tyranny. You're going to get absurdity. And you're going to get corruption. Mm-hmm. That's what you're going to get. Is that what you want? And they're like, yeah, that's what we want. And so God gives it to them. And over the next 400 years, Israel slowly declines under the predominantly bad leadership of kings, Mm -hmm. where the kings do exactly what God said they would do. They lead the people into corruption. They lead the people into absurdity. And they lead the people into tyranny, right? Mm -hmm. And that's what they experience. And then ultimately, their tyranny declines into a kind of anarchy where then they're taken over by a larger and worse tyranny. And so the people live in slavery, Mm -hmm. right? And so God saves them from slavery right out of egypt he makes them free right he demands that they be virtuous and bear that freedom they choose not to mm-hmm. they ask for a tyrant and they get the fruit of their tyranny and the fruit of their anarchy which leads them back to slavery mm-hmm. right yeah. until ultimately he gives them freedom a second time and sends the savior jesus mm-hmm. who comes to make men free right mm-hmm. galatians says it was for freedom That Christ set you free, no longer to be a slave to the law that leads to slavery. Mm -hmm. And that it was life not under law, but in the spirit. What does that mean? It means that we are internally, divinely self-governed through the regenerating work of Christ. So that we can have the self-governance of virtue, love, joy, peace. What's the fruit of the spirit? Mm -hmm. Virtue, love, Mm -hmm. joy, peace, patience, Mm kindness, goodness, faithfulness, self-control. So that we can live free and in that freedom produce righteousness shalom peace justice all those kinds of things mm-hmm. that's always been the plan of god and heaven is is the place that justly could have an infinite number of rules but doesn't need any rules mm-hmm. because it's the place where people where all the people who live there are full of virtue and understand god's truth mm-hmm. and in the presence of understanding that truth and the ability to self-govern and the willingness to do so you need no rules
0: mm-hmm. So I mean we're not in heaven yet, so right. what is that what does that mean then that we're supposed to do at this time if we're if we need what is that we should desire as Christians as American citizens? Mm-hmm. What, what kind of government I mean is is that even a question that we can answer because mm-hmm. you, there are I mean, there doesn't seem to be, a specific type of government that is isn't corrupt. You know, there there's all there's something wrong with any kind. So, what is it that we can really hope for here?
1: Yeah, well, there's a couple of things. One is um, to recognize that the freedom of religion does not mean freedom from religion. Mm-hmm. Um, that, that those kinds of quips that people say are actually false. That um, whatever whatever society we have um, should allow for the fostering of what society needs to survive, live, and thrive. And um, America was founded and reality dictates that for people to have a chance at living with virtue and therefore being able to to uphold the requirements of virtue and therefore be able to be free and for that freedom to produce something good rather than anarchy, which leads to tyranny, Mm -hmm. then you have to have a society that upholds and supports free religion. Mm -hmm. So you don't want a government that forces people to be religious. Mm -hmm. You don't want a government that says we're going to believe in this religion. But you also don't want a tyrannically secularized government that really is implicitly and and formally and, you know, strangely and aggressively essentially trying to disestablish or really um, disincentivize any religious belief. Mm -hmm. Um, America was found actually as a place in which a robust public expression of religious faith was supposed to be normal. Mm -hmm. And um, What we're getting now is a irreligious. And I think that wise Christians should not only say that's not historically right and that's not morally right, but they should begin to argue with more confidence that that is actually doomed. That the secular irreligious project is a doomed project. God doesn't have to curse it for it to fail. It will fail because of the nature of reality and, that, and because of human nature. Mm-hmm. The only thing that you can have in the absence of religiously motivated virtue is anarchy and tyranny. That's all we've ever had, mm-hmm. and that's all we'll ever have, even if God didn't act. Um, one, one example of this is um, is like the, is the history of socialism, for example, mm-hmm. the idea that by creating a larger government control. that's going to produce human flourishing, really has only ever produced tyranny. Right. So the history of the 20th century with socialism of all of of its various kinds has a track record of 80 to 100 million deaths, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Nothing has been more deadly in the last 100 years than government, especially government with an understanding that they were going to bring about the free and just society, Right. Um, There is no such thing as a free and just society apart from a virtuous people. Mm -hmm. Now, that doesn't mean everybody has to be like a Republican or something. There are versions of understanding this that can be embodied by the emphases of the Democratic Party. right? The Democratic Mm -hmm. Party's emphases tend to be um, communitarian and they tend to be focused on producing just and fair that is equitable and more equalized ends. And um, you can believe in those values and believe in the golden triangle and then figure out how that would work. And be a Democrat. Mm -hmm. Or you could be a Republican and you could say, well, we want freedom and we believe in the Golden Triangle. How would that work? Um, But the the Bible knows nothing of radical individualism. It knows nothing of this Mm -hmm. idea that as a free individual, you have no responsibilities to anybody else. In the Bible, you have responsibilities to everything. Mm -hmm. To God, to your family, to your city, to your people, to to, to your faith, Mm -hmm. to the church, to the... There's all these mediating structures of civil and religious society and governmental society that you have all kinds of responsibilities to. Mm -hmm. So they're like, Total individualism of like libertarianism or like utter individualism is totally foreign to the Bible. Right. And so in that sense, every Christian should be uncomfortable with certain strains within republicanism. Mm -hmm. Right. And so somehow we've got to figure out how this works. But I think Christians have to start from this understanding that a society that isn't virtuous cannot be free and will necessarily descend either into anarchy or tyranny. And anarchy always leads to tyranny. So the end is always tyranny. Mm -hmm. And then re-establishing freedom is enormously difficult. Mm-hmm. And, and that unvirtuous people could never do it. Right. And so freedom is a very... That's why if you look at the whole history of the world... Mar- Mar- Milton Friedman said this one time when people were talking about freedom and why it wasn't that big a deal. He said, what do you think is the normal state of humanity throughout the history of the world? Do you think it's freedom? Of course it's not freedom. It's tyranny. It's mm-hmm. enslavement. That's the history of the world. Mm-hmm. It's only in very few places at very few times... Through very strange human phenomena that freedom is established mm-hmm. right and that's a fact i mean that's not a political statement right that's just a historical fact anything resembling human freedom is a very rare thing in the history of the world mm-hmm. and therefore the america is exceptional historically in the sense that there was a birth of freedom here right that was remarkable now it was an incomplete one and we have to very hastily add that mm-hmm. and it took the later founding father of like martin luther king to be like hey what about everybody right. <laughs> getting this? Yeah. Um, but even Martin Luther King was appealing to the Golden Triangle. He was appealing to the fact that we claim to be a free society, a society of liberty, but it's on the basis of virtue. But how could one be virtuous if they upheld the slavery of segregation? Mm-hmm. You can't. There's an internal contradiction. It's against everything this country stands for, don't you see? Mm-hmm. Well, that argument is based on the idea that the white Anglo-Saxon slave-holding men of the Continental Congress were right. Mm-hmm. They were ultimately right about human nature. What King says, well, what he said in his, I have a dream speech was, I have a, un- I have a uncashed check that was written in 1776 mm-hmm. or a- 82, I guess it would be. I mean, you're not later the constitution, yeah. <laughs> but both in 1776 and 1980 or, 80, or, 1780 or 82, he said, I have an uncashed check about Liberty mm-hmm. that has not ever been checked, ch- um, cashed for me mm-hmm. and for my people. We want our check cashed. Mm-hmm. Well, the whole basis of that is this understanding, and because King's understanding was profoundly biblical.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. So when I think about where our culture is today, I see um, generally secular culture wanting freedom to to really mean not holding one very solid group of virtues. Or mm-hmm. so. So where. Where do you think that got lost? Mm-hmm. Where, where you're all of a sudden equating freedom with no virtue.
1: Yeah, I mean, I've heard it's sort of village atheists or intellectual atheists like Richard Dawkins say all the time, like, we can be good without God. We don't need religion for this. It turns out that it is a decently difficult thing to come up with a list of virtues in the absence of moral revelation. Mm-hmm. because it, Because what you end up getting is that when human beings are not seen as creatures bearing God's image, and therefore, bearing his moral nature and having a conscientious responsibility to the world in which they live, mm-hmm. what you end up usually getting is um, ethical expressivism. That is, how I express myself is what is authentically myself, and therefore, what is authentic must be moral, mm-hmm. because what authentic is is what's honest, and everybody has an innate sense that honesty is what is right. So, th- there's mm-hmm. this famous yeah. thing by H. L. Mencken who was like. This very torrid and mean atheist, but very, in, very intelligent writer for the New York Times back like in the 20s during like the Scopes trial and stuff mm-hmm. like that. And he said he had this like, you know, his own like code. And he said, I don't believe that anything is could be said to be right or wrong. And then he says that honesty is universally right. I believe in honesty. <laughs> and, and you're kind of like, yo, Wait, HL, like yeah. what's going on here? Yeah. Uh, and, and the issue, the issue there obviously is he wanted to believe that honesty was like sort of inherently good and yet nothing was inherently good or bad mm-hmm. um, but what what that re- what that reveals is even who pe- people when they get into subjectivism or relativism they still can't not know that there's something good about right about honesty mm-hmm. and something wrong about lying
0: mm-hmm.
1: and so but the problem is, is that what's wait what is being honest you see in expressivism being honest is being quote authentic and being authentic is to express what's really inside you And not repressing it. What that basically means is self-control is evil. That's, I mean, that's what that ultimately Mm -hmm. means. Mm -hmm. And so, therefore, expressing yourself is the most important thing. And if expressing yourself is the most important thing, that's what's right. Mm -hmm. Well, the whole concept of morality is surrounding the restraint of what's inside you. That there's a lot of what's inside you that should not be expressed. Mm -hmm. That it should be suppressed and not let out. Mm -hmm. That you should be transformed so that it's no longer in there. Right. And that is the essence of a Judeo-Christian or Western morality. Sure. And so if, if you engage in a secularist project, the idea that you can come up with a meaningful, virtuous morality that has a oughtness built into it and an enforcement built into it that will be broadly accepted is just not true. Mm-hmm. What happened when um, secular intellectuals deconstructed Judeo-Christian morality is the mass of people gave up on morality. They didn't go, oh... We can hold to a basic morality without God. Isn't that interesting? Mm -hmm. Why don't I do that? No, what they did is they stopped getting married. They started having children out of wedlock. Mm -hmm. They started stealing more and lying more, not finishing what they started, essentially living unvirtuously. Mm -hmm. And then they didn't have the money to fix those problems. And so they they lived in squalor, degradation, pain. Because Proverbs says that the way of the foolish person is hard. Mm -hmm. It's a hard life. Mm -hmm. Well, what secular intellectuals have unleashed upon the mass of human society is a terribly hard life because they didn't want to deal with the difficulty of virtue. Mm -hmm. But the problem is, is that virtue is what kept the poor afloat. Right. It's what protected them and it was their strength. Mm -hmm. It's what produced what Robert Putnam, the Harvard psychologist calls social capital. You can be very poor in money, but virtue produces a network of, of trust, which produces family Mm -hmm. and society and neighborhood, Mm -hmm. Which can, which is an enormous value, right. and and keeps makes you wealthy in a kind of way, even if you don't have a lot of money.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: But without virtue, all that breaks down. Right, and so you have neither capital nor social capital, mm-hmm. and you're poor in every sense of the word.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And that's one of the reasons why to be compassionate towards people in de- degradational poverty, the welfare state has had to massively increase. Mm-hmm. Because as our secularist approach that has under that is like undercut a deep robust Judeo-Christian virtue that is put on us by God and enforced by him that has a sense of oughtness that we we must obey it, that this is who and what we are. People have devolved morally and as that happens, they live a harder life and if we have compassion for them, those of us who have, we'll say, well, yeah, we ought to help. And so so welfare state radically increases, Mm -hmm. which in one sense would be okay except for there aren't enough, there isn't enough riches to pay for the hardness of lives without virtue. Mm-hmm. And so ultimately what you get is what you get in all of the historical societies that have tried to do this, which is bankruptcy, mm-hmm. which leads to anarchy, which leads to tyranny. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And the problem is that that's not even a political thing. That's not like vote Republican or vote Democrat. Right. That's just human nature. Mm-hmm. That is how humans respond to things. And the problem is, is that secularly irreligious prophets don't they just refuse to believe that. But th- but one of the, I th- in some sense that is pessimistic, but in other sense it's very optimistic for Christians. Basically, the people who are telling us to shut up, that we're stupid and that we don't know anything, and that we can't speak into society, and we should we should we should pull back and let them try their thing, they are in, they are putting on a nation something that has never caused a, a people to flourish and can't ever. Mm-hmm. It is utterly doomed to failure as it interacts with human nature, and can only make the lowest possible expression of our creaturehood out of the great mass of humans. Mm-hmm. And, the, and and they'll come back and say, not if we educate people. But the problem is, is that real education co- comes to those with virtue. Mm-hmm. Because education is itself a work. It is, a, it is something that you have to take hold of. It's something that requires discipline and focus and precision mm-hmm. and disciplines of all kinds. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, you can't ever really educate yourself well. And so, without virtue, people don't take advantage of you. Can you can give people free PhDs, and they don't have the virtue to take advantage of it? And so, we. And so, the response is, well, we they just spend more on education, and more on the welfare state, and we go bankrupt faster. Mm-hmm. We don't produce educated people, which produces anarchy, which produces tyranny.
0: Mm-hmm. So, in your sermon, you also talked about. I mean, we talked about that the golden triangle of. America Mm -hmm. and then of Liberty of Liberty Mm -hmm. and then you also added your own triangle yes to like virtue specific of of virtue so like yeah so as you're talking about like you know virtue virtue really is going to um be the foundation for having any sort of right um positive society yeah what how are we supposed to approach that, or or looking for
1: that? Yeah, so a follow up question to that is kind of like, so wait, Nick, All right, so does that mean that we can have any kind of any kind of religion, right? So is Ben Franklin's religion enough? Mm-hmm. And the Christian answer is no, it isn't actually. Um, it is enough to understand a proper philosophy of how to make a government for a free people, mm-hmm. but it's not enough to make a people virtuous because what we see, the whole message of the Old Testament is, God gave people a perp- a perfect plan for sustained liberty. And they failed. Mm -hmm. They fell into anarchy. They fell into tyranny. They asked for tyranny. They fell into more tyranny. They degraded into anarchy and they became slaves. Mm -hmm. That's what happens with people. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't until the second Moses came and not only reestablished his law, but created a possibility for internal salvation, which had the spiritual power to regenerate, um, what we couldn't be, even with conscience, Mm -hmm. to re-alive and and regenerate and and renovate from the inside and also allow us to receive the spiritual power of the Holy Spirit so that we have all the resources necessary to rise up into the virtue that we were created to have. Mm -hmm. Without the instruction of the Bible, without the heroic example of Jesus, without the justifying work of Jesus to save us, the freeing us from the power of sin and sanctification, his presence in us by the Holy Spirit, and his clarity of call of what we're supposed to be, we, we can never have the power, the focus, or the community necessary to build and uphold the virtue necessary to be free people. And so um, I, I would definitely argue that in Proverbs is the gospel. That what, when the Proverbs says, the, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, what he's saying is it starts with believing God's promise. Mm -hmm. Now in the writing of Solomon, that promise wasn't entirely worked out in the man, Jesus Christ yet, but it was based on this idea that God has Mm self-disclosed. And in that self-disclosure, he has made promises and told us about reality. And the first step of salvation is believing him. Mm -hmm. Um, And therefore accepting his wisdom. Ultimately, part of that wisdom is you need help. Mm -hmm. You need to be forgiven And you also need to be empowered and transformed. And that comes through the man, Jesus Christ, in his death and resurrection, giving you the Holy Spirit, regenerating you from the inside out, and so on. Mm -hmm. And so in that, we become able to become people of virtue. And so in the Bible, the Bible would not say, oh, yeah, just believe in whatever. As long as you believe in, you know, that God judges and you should be good. Well, you still have to define what be good is. And that's what the whole book of Proverbs is about. Mm -hmm. The whole book of Proverbs is let's get specific about what this wisdom is. And that wisdom is specifically, ultimately, Christian when you ultimately take in the whole of God's revelation, right. not just the Book of Proverbs, right. and God's ultimate revelation in the Man Jesus, His incarnation, life, death, resurrection, and ascension. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So,
0: so like once that is established, right. like if you if you have that, you know, if you concretely you accept, like, so we're talking about the church members now at this mm-hmm. point. So like we accept and know that Christ has to be the foundation from which any type of virtue can. Can come about. Right. What is that supposed to look? Like?
1: Yeah, so let me let me go at this a different way because I want okay. I want to talk to like there's a lot of twenty somethings that go to church at mm-hmm. High Point and twenty um, something's been raised on this concept of social justice, right? And so they'd be like, we got we believe in social justice. Social justice right. is so important, and and it, social justice is incredibly important. It is uh, properly understood. Mm-hmm. There's a great <laughs> book out by Michael Novak, which I would encourage anybody under 40 or so to read, mm-hmm. called "Social Justice Isn't What You Think It Is." And he he tra- he traces a lot of stuff through Catholic social thought, so- thought, but essentially his conclusion is this: social justice isn't a utopian idea. It's not because what most people mean by social justice is socialism. They mean there is this there is this utopian society in which there is a power that equalizes everything, so everybody gets what they should, mm-hmm. and everybody is materially and every in every other way equal that in every way possible that is not degrading. Right. And that's beautiful. And that's social justice. And what Novak says is, no, that's socialism. And it's a nightmare
0: mm-hmm.
1: in reality. What social justice is, is actually the individual virtue of justly relating socially.
0: Okay.
1: Which will produce justice socially. When you and I realize mm-hmm. what, what it means to act as a just person is that I'm not a radical individual. And I am not a cog in a collective. I exist in many mediating structures in which I participate. I benefit from. Um, they have a history that supported me. I come on the scene at a particular time. Mm-hmm. With um, there's a memory to it, and so I enter a family. Mm-hmm. By entering a family, I don't have the right to be like, "Well, I'm me." No, right. I have responsibilities in right. that family. They have responsibilities to me, and that is innate, innate to my moral requirements mm-hmm. right and so social justice is me justly recognizing my social responsibilities in these spheres and acting mm-hmm. rightly in them mm-hmm. and if people did that you would get a socially just outcome mm-hmm. right you'd get more you would get more equality because there'd be more intergenerosity, right there'd be less ruthless individualistic competition and so on mm-hmm. but you also would get more freedom mm-hmm. more liberty more choice mm-hmm. And so that definition is a nonpartisan definition and it's a Christian definition. Mm-hmm. And I would encourage, especially 20 somethings who've been raised in this kind of like, well, way Christianity should affirm social justice to actually understand that social justice isn't what you think it is. Mm-hmm. And if that's what social justice is, then social justice proceeds from personal virtue. Mm-hmm. And, or, and then the question is, well, then what produces the personal virtue that will produce that social justice and is believe in God, faith, learning the dictates of what God teaches, not just the book of Proverbs, but in the whole of the Bible, Mm that is understanding the kingdom and our citizenship in it. Mm -hmm. And then thirdly, the practice of discipline, Mm -hmm. that we have to habituate ourselves because we're embodied. A lot of people are like all about our embodiedness because they eat well and they exercise, but they don't think in terms of like that they're spiritually embodied Mm -hmm. and they have to get their body on the side of their spiritual being. And and the only way to do that is to habituate your body. The way to transform your body is by habit. Mm -hmm. It's the only way to do it. Mm -hmm. Right. And that's true of your thinking and your feeling because a lot of your thinking and feeling is embodied in your brain and hormones and stuff. Right. But that can be habituated. You can habituate how you think. Like, there's a reason why most people can't think straight for more than 15 seconds. It's just because their brain is out of shape. Mm-hmm. It's just like that you didn't, mm-hmm. like, you don't lift weights. Right. Thinking and arguing, like, it's, you're a great example of this. When you came on staff a year ago, you didn't make arguments about things, right. you just said stuff. And that's totally normal. But then you came into this context in which I created this culture of making arguments. Like, Mm -hmm. what are the reasons? Why? And you were like, you've lived in that for a year and you've gotten in shape. And now you make really good arguments. And you can see this in lots of ways in thinking and reading. When people read, they can read longer. Mm -hmm. When people think, they can think clearer. Mm -hmm. When people write and try to write really clear thoughts down, those thoughts get clearer over time. Mm -hmm. Because they're getting their brain in shape. Mm -hmm. The same thing is true of our emotions. Our emotions are flitty like... Undisciplined things and you can habituate your emotions N- not that you should like suppress them in a way b- and deny you have them right but you could say that emotion is not right mm-hmm. or that emotion is not in proportion or that that's called this is just called temperance right mm-hmm. having your emotions kind of in proportion mm-hmm.
0: because
1: mm-hmm. your emotions aren't naturally correct right Right. You have to correct them. Yeah. And your body, like, you have to force yourself out of bed and to go for the run so that you'll have energy later. Mm -hmm. If you give in to laziness, you have less energy tomorrow. Mm -hmm. And so you're more prone to be lazy. And it's a self-feeding loop. Right. right? And so discipline and habituation is absolutely 100% necessary for virtue. Mm -hmm. And we live in such an undisciplined society, a society that hates discipline and everything but physical exercise. Mm -hmm. And most society doesn't do that, do physical exercise. Right. Um, that people just look at, whatever you talk about discipline, they look at you kind of cockeyed like a dog, where you're like, hey, you want to go for a walk? And they're trying to figure out what the rest <laughs> of the sentence besides walk means. Mm-hmm. And like, I think I understand what you're saying, but I don't think I understand what you're saying. Mm-hmm. And that's how people respond to discipline, whereas for basically all the history of the world, people have kind of recognized, especially successful people, that like, discipline is the heart of all success. Mm-hmm. Um, that and that wasn't a Christian notion. It's very easy to just observe that if you just observe reality.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: But because the Bible connects Christ with reality, it teaches it everywhere. Right. But it teaches that our discipline should be motivated and focused on how we would discipline ourselves understanding reality on the basis of Christ. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. So instead of discipline myself to be able to kill you like a Spartan, mm-hmm. I need to discipline myself so I can rightly react to you respond to you in love like a Christian. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Yes. I
0: hope so. Yeah. Yeah. So – and the theme that caught my attention as you were talking about, you know, needing – we need to have that discipline. We need to instill habits that that we actually – that will help us to be disciplined. Mm -hmm. Responsibility was the word that I just kept thinking that Mm -hmm. um, we – I think we've grown as a culture to not really – we don't put responsibility on ourselves. And so Mm -hmm. – and I think that's like a huge root as to why – when we – I think when people say social justice – They don't naturally think personal responsibility. It's more just like, yes, as a group, we, we, and then things link out of that.
1: Right. And I think this is one of the ways where Christians can affirm most Democrats and correct a lot of Republicans is, um, there's a lot of, there's a lot of people on the political right who will be like, well, coercion is bad. Mm -hmm. Coercion is bad. Mm -hmm. But it is also true that social justice is a personal virtuous dictate on you, which means freedom has responsibilities. Mm -hmm. And those responsibilities are morally necessary for you. Now, whether or not the government should enforce them in what ways it should be in large government programs, that's a different question. Right. But the fact that you, as a free person, have responsibilities to others and you can't say, I'm an individual. I don't have any responsibilities to you. That's not true. Christians have never believed that. Thomas mm-hmm. Paine might have believed that. But he was one of the most atheists of all the founding fathers. Mm-hmm. Um No Christians have ever believed that. Christians have always believed in these mediating structures between the individual. So Edmund Burke is the British person sort of associated with this kind of, they call it conservatism, but it's essentially the belief that life actually exists mostly between the individual and the the government. Mm -hmm. There's what used to be called civil society, which is everything that isn't government and and individual. Families, businesses, commerce, churches, Mm -hmm. all of that. And that's where life happens. And people naturally recognize and interact voluntarily in these things and do so in many cases morally on the basis of what they believe they're supposed to do. Mm-hmm. And social justice is essentially the virtue of understanding those right relationships and responding to them properly, mm-hmm. right? Because there is that responsibility. Yeah. Yeah. But, I, but part of it, part of holding into that responsibility is that the self-control and temperance has to be there, which mm-hmm. comes from discipline.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, so we've—I mean—we've discussed this for forty minutes now. Mm-hmm. Are, we, are there other thoughts that you really wanted to make sure that we're clarified? You know, or about anything that we've been covering. And do um, you think back on your sermon,
1: yeah, I think that um, yeah. Let me talk about a couple of books mm-hmm. people could look at it if they want to. I did—I quoted Oskanis's book, *Suicide of a Free People*, um, which I think is probably a helpful book, but I have not read that book. Um, two of the books that I have read and been reading that I think are are quite helpful is Eric Metaxas' book, If You Can Keep It, which is it's sometimes like Rediscovering the Secret of American Liberty or something like that. Mm-hmm. And he talks a lot about, he talks about the Golden Triangle. He talks about virtue. He talks about revering heroes. He talks about a lot of that stuff that is very helpful, and, and that is an audiobook too. Okay. And then uh, another book that I found really helpful is called Liberty Secrets by Joshua Charles, And in that book, he covers very similar kinds of things about how freedom is built about religion and virtue and how central those were to the founding fathers. He quotes extensively from the founding fathers about their belief in that from Washington and Jefferson and Adams and Mason and Madison and all these people Mm -hmm. that a lot of Christians think are atheists because that's what they were taught somewhere. Mm -hmm. Um, and And of course, they weren't. And he talks about how those are absolutely central to how we understand freedom mm-hmm. and how that how that is a kind of freedom that should lead to social justice. Mm-hmm. Because th- one of the things that, that I I haven't I don't know if I've said it explicitly, but I would love people to hear me saying is this. Um, the political dichotomy in America for a fully biblical Christian is in many ways a false dichotomy. Because more and more the Republican Party is being taken over, especially coming in this election, by libertarian ideas. And there's a lot that's good about libertarianism in that it's against coercion and tyrannical coercion isn't good. Mm -hmm. But they don't have a concept of a personal virtue of social justice, understanding how responsibility is is a necessary Mm -hmm. relation. Um, The Democratic Party sees responsibilities as corporately instituted Mm -hmm. because nobody wants to give and then have the other people not give. Right? You'd be like, well, I'll be charitable, I'll give like 10% of my wealth, and then you give nothing, and you're like, ah, you, gave, you gave, <laughs> right. and I didn't. And so they're like, hey, everybody should have to play. right? They're, everybody has this. If, if this obligation is real, mm-hmm. then we should institute it on everybody so everybody's generous, and nobody has to be more generous, mm-hmm. because that's the way it is. Um, both of those are false choices to the Christian, because Christians, essentially the Bible lays down the centrality of our responsibility to the mediating organizations of human life, it's what, what Burke would have called civil society this middle ground, and it's something that both parties speak less and less about. And this is why um, G.K. Chesterton said, modernity is ultimately a showdown between the state and the family and what is really sovereign in the lives of people and what our responsibilities really are too. And one of the bases of European communistic socialism was that we should teach the kids to tell on their parents. (laughs) Right, That was part of communistic socialism. It was part of Um, Eastern European socialism, and it was part of state socialism. and uh, Because Nazism, that is fascism, is Mm -hmm. state socialism. That's what it was called. Mm -hmm. That's what they called it. And in all of those things, one of the things they all shared was teaching young people to tell on their parents, Mm -hmm. which essentially is the most practical way the government can be above the family. Mm -hmm. When they say, we own your kids, and we will get your kids to tell on you. Mm -hmm. And the Christian has to believe in the sovereignty of the family, and the sovereignty of the church, both in their spheres. Mm-hmm. So the family doesn't rule society. Right. The family rules the family. And they have a sovereign sphere that the state has no right to interrupt. Mm-hmm. And the church has a sovereign sphere that the, that the state has no right to interrupt. Mm-hmm. And th- and that there is commerce or freedom of property that people get to exchange and they have a right to the fruit of their own labor, that the government and the individual has no right to interrupt. Mm-hmm. And so government has to lay across that in its own sphere That is limited and controlled, and yet the government does have to recognize that there is a morally virtuous reality that free people do have external responsibilities. Mm -hmm. And in some cases, they have to enforce those. Mm -hmm. And so you do have to have government. Government is the grace of God, Bible says. And so what I would love Christians to be able to say, even Christians who believe in, quote, social justice, is to realize what social justice must mean within a Christian framework. Mm -hmm. That The political parties of America present something of a false dichotomy. And therefore, the first thing a Christian should do is recognize that we should not be captured by either political party. Mm -hmm. That we should understand the nature of human societies as dictated in the Golden Triangle and how the Bible teaches those things Mm -hmm. and how people descend into anarchy and tyranny and how freedom therefore functions and that liberty is very hard to restart once it's dead. And therefore, the Founding Fathers gave priority to liberty over the just society. Mm -hmm. Liberty had to be a higher priority because if you lost it, it was gone. Mm -hmm. And you could always try something else to create a just society. Mm-hmm. And if Christians got some of that stuff straight, I think that they could advocate publicly in much more fruitful ways. Yeah. And the second thing is, I'd love to see them grow more bold against secular irreligious clap mm-hmm. To see it for the sort of bl- blatant and brash stupidity that it is mm-hmm. and say, that's not just wrong, that's dangerously and kind of stupidly wrong. And observing... Human history, human nature, human relationships, in, in microcosms and macrocosms and countries and in dating relationships, it's just shown to be false everywhere. That when you tell people that there is no greater moral being who is given a greater moral law, who will enforce that greater moral law, and therefore you are obliged to believe it and obey it that never produces good things in a population Mm -hmm. there may be individual atheists who are like i'm a good person but honestly you look at the great atheists and you study their lives and most of them are all scoundrels Mm -hmm. bertrand russell had five wives Mm -hmm. he was known to be a magnificent jerk but because he didn't believe certain things were right or wrong he could believe he was a good guy Mm -hmm. because there's not nothing ultimately sacred about marriage so the fact that he got divorced well what does it matter Mm -hmm. i'm not a bad person Well, if marriage is a sacred covenant between two people because men and women pay into it differently and pledge to rely on each other in a sacred trust, then you're the biggest jerk that's ever lived, Mm -hmm. right? So what ends up happening in the atheistic reductions is they basically prove that nothing is bad. And if nothing is intrinsically bad, then we're all good people. And of course, everybody will be moral. Yeah, and they'll be fools, and they'll live terribly difficult and painful lives, mm-hmm. and the society will implode into anarchy and mm-hmm. ultimately then be governed by tyranny. Mm-hmm. And so that project is doomed. And so Christians can either say, well, let's just ride it out, which will mean we will have to suffer with them mm-hmm. through anarchy and then tyranny, mm-hmm. which I think in some ways we're already experiencing. Mm-hmm. Or, we can, or we can step in and try to be a, a as humble as possible prophetic voice and say, This is doomed, don't you see? Mm -hmm. It's already showing its fruit. We already see the first fruits of it. We already see us not governing ourselves, us living in anarchy, us destroying the poor and encouraging them to live in anarchy. And then we come in and create these weird tyrannies which produce tyranny, absurdity, and corruption. There's now corruption increasing everywhere. There's absurdity everywhere. Don't you see this is idiotic? Mm -hmm. We have to turn back to virtue, but the only way we can do so is if we turn back to God. Mm -hmm. Um, I believe that Christians should fight that fight, even if it's the long defeat, as mm-hmm. J.R.R. Tolkien called it. Mm-hmm. I think that's our duty. And I think, right. it's, a, I think it's not just a duty of truth. I think it's our duty of love mm-hmm. to our fellow human beings. Mm-hmm. And I believe if we get these ideas straight, we understand the teaching of Proverbs in terms of the larger golden triangle of virtue and how virtue is built in us through faith, learning the truths of wisdom mm-hmm. and discipline then we will become the kind of people that can weather whatever anarchy and tyranny we might face. Mm -hmm. And we're the kind of people that can call back a people to the virtue that comes from faith Mm -hmm. so that we can really enjoy a new birth of Liberty, Mm -hmm. which I believe will ultimately produce social justice, which will produce a more just and peaceful society. Mm -hmm. But if we, if we forget about all those foundations and we just say, no, we just want the, we just want the ultimate free, just society. We want the utopia We want the socialist end and we just pursue that directly. What we get is the worst possible corruption, the worst possible tyranny, and the worst possible absurdity. Not because nice people who want those things are bad, but because human nature and reality dictates that must always be the end Mm -hmm. of that pursuit. Mm -hmm. And anytime human beings think that they can get something good by bypassing virtue, as taught to us by God, they are wanting something on terms they could never have it. Mm -hmm and they're wanting something that has never been and never can be Mm
0: -hmm. yeah and that will take a lot of patience for those of us who are in the church and want because we it takes time and and we may not see it in our even our in our own lifetime Mm -hmm. but to be able to stand firm and rest assured that we are believing and boldly speaking these things Mm -hmm. that that at least will give a peace to people who are holding on to that even if we don't see the fruit
1: and just very lastly here's why we don't have to wait because the family and the church are micro micro societies Mm -hmm. and the church and the family can embody this right now. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah.
1: We could choose to be virtuous people in our families. Mm -hmm. We can choose to be virtuous people in local churches together and we can live with liberty that produces justice, Mm -hmm. social justice, peace, harmony, and love. And we can do it through virtue and we could do it on the basis of faith And we can do it and then we can shine like a city on a hill. Mm -hmm. And if we do that, then people can look at us and say, wait a second, Mm -hmm. maybe that is the way forward. Even though we've called these people bigots and haters and all these things because of what they call virtues, Mm -hmm. their virtues actually produce some really wonderful things. And maybe we need to rethink this. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Great. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah, I hope that's helpful
1: for our listeners. And I hope that you guys feel like you can have some confidence Mm -hmm. in believing in those things. Mm
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and again, for our listeners, if, if there's other topics or things that either you hear in a sermon or come up in a small group discussion that you think you'd want um, Nick and I to dive into more, um, you can always email those suggestions to Jill Reese, our communications coordinator, at jrease, um, J-R-E-A-S-A, at highpointchurch.org, because um, we want to be able to talk about things that um, definitely take more than just the 45, 55 minutes on a yeah. Sunday morning that we that we hear.
1: Yeah, and I will put um, a lot of the uh, founding fathers' quotes into a blog because we didn't read those in this. Yes, and I'll put those in a blog so that you guys can see them and have reference
0: for those quotations. Great,
1: great. All right, see you guys next time.